Our first guest on the program today is a sociology professor at St. Thomas University in Fredericton, New Brunswick. Dr. Christy Elaine has also been named a Canada Research Chair in Physical Culture and Social Life, and her work will examine the ways that power operates through the intersections of physical activity, aging, gender, and Canadian national identity. And it's that last line, that last description, or part of her work, uh, that brings us to our introduction of Dr. Christy Elaine this morning, because she wrote this really nifty piece for theconversation.com entitled, For the Love of the Game, What Old Men's Hockey Can Teach Young Players. Dr. Elaine, Christy, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, you're from Peterborough, Ontario. We have to put that one on the table right up front, Christy, because <laughs> that is the home of hockey in the province of Ontario, along with the Peets and a whole lot of graduates in the NHL still these days. Did you grow up in a hockey mad household? I really did. My mother was a, my, both my parents were huge hockey fans. My mother, especially, she liked to brag that she missed only one Peets game for the birth of both my sister and I. And we oh were both my. born in the winter, so. Yeah, we grew up um, excited about the Peets. We went regularly as kids. My parents boarded uh, a Russian hockey player who played for the Peets as well. Oh, my. So yeah. great stories, and, and what a great hockey town to come from. And I'm assuming you watched the game last night uh, in uh, in the overtime uh, and the win by Tampa Bay. I didn't. I, it's hard being a hockey researcher. You, um, It makes sometimes the pleasure of hockey is a little bit more difficult to find. I've been really spending most of my time watching uh, older men play hockey for the winter, and that's been really joyful and fun for me. Well, I know. I'm I'm just. I just thought you might be picking a little up on that Stanley Cup. So, by the way, they've got back-to-back games. It it could all be wrapped up tonight. So you may you may want to tune in a little bit of that. But let's zoom in on this article that you wrote for theconversation.com for the love of the game. What old men's hockey can teach young players. So you said, you confessed right up front, in front of lots of witnesses, that you've been spending a lot of time watching old dudes play hockey in uh, empty empty arenas, which of course is what we're used to, old guys who play hockey. There's never anyone there, so that never changes. But what have you learned, Christy? Um, It's been such a learning experience. I started my career interviewing athletes who played for teams like the Peets, and I was really... um, I was really concerned about the culture of men's hockey and what was going on there. And I had a bit of a, a shift in my research focus and started thinking about, you know, as the baby boomers are getting older, there are new pressures on people in later life to stay fit and active. How does Canadian national identity and hockey fit into that story? And I spent some time with a couple of different teams, so one in the conversations about a team in southern Ontario, and I spent about 10 days with that team in November and then went back just before the COVID lockdown for most of February and a little bit of March and spent some time with the team then. And it was just such a breath of fresh air. The the players on that team embody a totally different way of playing hockey, of thinking about the game, of understanding competition. Uh, it was really a place for uh, old people to be old. It was okay to be old. It was okay to have disabilities. It was... Um, you know, people celebrated athletes who played with uh, replacement hips and ankles, mm-hmm, yeah. who came and visited during cancer treatment. People were very supportive and kind and loving. And it was wonderful to see that in contrast to some of the stories that have been coming out in the Canadian Hockey League around the same time, around sexual abuse and physical abuse of young athletes, to see a league really devoted to uh, good conduct, certain, playing with certain kinds of diversity, so players with cognitive um decline dementia alzheimer's were welcomed players helped them play and it was just a really lovely place to be in nobody came to watch them except maybe a couple of family members. exactly right um, yeah it, it was great um they really enjoyed i think having me there i really enjoyed the time there they're incredibly fast and you'd be really surprised at even the quality of hockey played by 70 and 80 year olds it's, it's quite remarkable it is quite surprising isn't it you know i i stopped playing because my back would let me after uh, once i got into my 40s but i was in the vancouver men's recreational hockey league that's a mouthful mm-hmm. but they had of course age 
categories, Christy. And the age guy, I remember watching some of the 60-plus league games because they'd have ice time before our guys did, right? Because the older guys yeah. got better ice time. The younger you were, the, the t- more terrible the ice time you got. So younger guys had to we get to be 10 and 11 o'clock at night ice times. The older guys would get 8, eight and 9. And you'd go and you'd watch the old guys play. And it was a different brand of hockey altogether. And I'm, I'm wondering what what drove you to this or what compelled you to sort of dive into all of this? And, and, and you've alluded to perhaps the reason, I'm curious, to maybe peel back some layers on the onion here, Christy, because you talked about uh, being put off by hockey culture amongst young players. And we've seen far too much evidence lately of, of the culture that exists in young hockeys. One thinks, for example, of the St. Mike's uh, hockey scandal back there with the initiation rituals and hazing and all of that kind of stuff. That's still pervasive, even though, you know, they'll, they'll recognize that it's wrong, that it's negative, and it's, it's antisocial. Nonetheless, in a lot of places, that still exists doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, my research on youth, uh, the Canadian Hockey League and hockey culture started in 2001 and went up to 2012. I interviewed lots of players. And my interest, I mean, really came from my parents boarding that, that Russian player. And I right. was really interested in the ways that um, Canadians and North Americans understood Europeans. But what I found was a culture that was really, really upsetting. Um, it was a closed community. People were really reluctant to talk about what happened in the locker room. And when they did, there were stories of hazing, abuse, mm-hmm. physical abuse, yep. sexual abuse, and and stories about the league, you know, not not stepping up in the ways that one might expect to deal with these kinds of abuse. And we've heard that through the story of Dan Carcillo and his uh, class action lawsuit that he's launching as well. At the same time, I was a PhD candidate at Trent University working with some incredible scholars who study aging. And it just, it really, you know, I wondered, you know, young men who are sort of socialized into this culture, what happens when they become 50, 60, 70, and 80? Mm -hmm. And how does the culture of hockey, you know, can can that kind of masculinity still be produced uh, by older men, or does something different happen? And it was a real opportunity to spend some time. I started doing some work with curlers, um, but I've subsequently moved over to do some work on hockey players. And what I've found is that, you know, this this model of Canadian masculinity and ice hockey, this rough, tough model, which really feeds into the culture of hockey, isn't something natural. It's not something that has to be there. And when you look at the culture of hockey played by these older men, many of whom have come through the same system sure. as the players who came through the CHL. Some of these players played at very high levels. Um, there's something that happens in later life that allows men to kind of release that form of masculinity and produce a new form of masculinity, one that's based on caring, one that's based on inclusion. And part of that, I think, is recognizing the um, the changes in their own bodies and the importance that sport has in their life. They don't want, you know, they, you know, a player said to me, I can see what's coming down the road and I don't want to be excluded. So I'm not going to exclude players or make it hard for players who have physical disabilities or cognitive disabilities to play and be on the ice with us. We want to have a place where people can play safely, Mm -hmm. where people can be comfortable. And there was just these really remarkable stories of players, you know, when one of the goalies had had, um, he'd had major surgery on his hips. He hadn't played in a long time. And one of the other players, we were sitting watching the game together, and he said, you know, when I come in on that goalie, I always shoot wide. It's better to, you know, it's better to kind of have fun and not injure him, and I don't want him to be injured. Um, players often said it was nicer to pass the puck. Mm-hmm. They really celebrated making other players look good, making players comfortable. Instead of producing intense competition, they wanted fair play. Um, they thought having even teams made competition more fun. And these are things that we don't see 
uh, in the culture of youth hockey that gets reproduced as, as athletes, particularly young men, move through the system. Well, and it's all, about the, it's all about the system, though, isn't it? The system yeah. is supposed to, you know, you're supposed to start out when you're five or six uh, after you've graduated from the backyard rink to some kind of organized something or other. And it's all about making it to the NHL. And even though most of us never do, when you're little, that's all you want to do. And that's what drives the culture. That's It's the motivation factor. We're on the line with Dr. Christy Elaine at St. Thomas University in Fredericton, New Brunswick this morning. She's written a terrific piece, which you can read in its entirety in a matter of minutes at theconversation.com. The piece is entitled, For the Love of the Game, What Old Men's Hockey Can Teach Young Players. And you just, you talked earlier, Christy, about the uh, clear uh, delineation between attitudes of older hockey players and ultra-competitive young guys. As you dove into this and spent some time with the, the senior players and, and watched the youth players and all the rest of it, have you determined an age? For example, uh, 20s would be the point at which most young hockey players come to terms with the fact that, as is the case with 99% of us, Christy, we're not going to make it to the NHL. Some of us go to you know Junior B and advance a little bit, but most of us don't. And yet there's still that nagging, oh, I coulda, coulda, woulda, shoulda in your 20s. So there's still, my son, for example, played beer league hockey and, and was surprised in his 20s at how, how aggressive some of the players still were, even though it was a non-contact lead and all the rest of that stuff. So what's the age by your determination at which a lot of that really uh, unnecessary aggression, reality sets in and people then begin to appreciate the love of the game and continue to play simply because of that. Yeah, I, I noticed that too. Even uh, I did some work with old-timer hockey players, which were over 35 and then over 45. There was still a shocking amount of physical aggression yes. in these old-timer men's hockey leagues. So it wasn't until I moved up to the 65 plus leagues that were in southern Ontario where I did my research that I started to see this shift. And and trying to understand, you know, what causes that shift and speaking with the players themselves, it seems that it's, um, it comes from an understanding that their bodies are more fragile, that there's a kind of masculinity of younger life that's associated with, a, you know, an impenetrability of the body, mm-hmm. that the body will continue to work forever, that you, it can take abuse, and, and that kind of masculinity that's sort of layered onto that around aggression, toughness, you know, not taking slack from anybody that's really part of the Canadian hockey culture seems to disappear when players get to be a little bit older. I had players talk about, you know, fear of injury becomes a, a really meaningful thing when sure. you get into your 60s and 70s because players don't recover as quickly from injury they're afraid of, of, you know, catastrophic injury that might cause serious disability. It's, it's important these players really like their mobility, their freedom are still important parts of being older men. Mm-hmm. And because they, they're, they're nervous about that, they tend to try and protect each other and protect themselves on the ice. And um, the rules also change, as I'm sure you investigated during all of this uh, research. There are as you progress from age group to age group, the description of how the game is to be played by this age group also changes. Contact, of course, Christy, being the most obvious, because the yeah. young, the younger you are, the more um, interested, shall we, are you, shall we say, you are in maintaining some degree of contact. And of course, incidental contact is unavoidable. It's the deliberate factor that gets taken away pretty early. It just doesn't get learned that early by many younger players. Yeah, I agree. I think taking uh, taking the kind of the direct, deliberate physical hitting out of the game really begins to change it. But certainly in the old-timers leagues that I followed in the Maritimes, there, there was no slap shots, there right. was no hitting yep. in an effort to protect the players, but there was fighting, there was still pushing. Um, it's rare in, in the, the leagues like the Silver Skaters, the 65-plus leagues, to see that kind of thing, and it's usually de-escalated very quickly. And when that arises, it's often linked to somebody um, going through maybe a player with dementia who reacts um, reacts very quickly without thinking, and players work really hard to de-escalate that, whereas in younger leagues, there's not that kind of group work to make sure that these kinds of acts of physical violence don't happen on the ice. Um, 
yeah, I think taking hitting out of the game early um, helps with that. But I do think that there's something that comes along with the, a change in understanding, you know, how to be an appropriate man, what masculinity means that happens as players recognize their bodies are are not indestructible, that their bodies can become injured. And, and just a new respect for players that have really lived life in a particular way. Their bodies have showed the marks of their age, sure. whether it's through, you know, back injuries, uh, knee braces, uh, replacement joints, etc. And there's a deep respect for players who can, you know, keep going. It's, it's still a form of masculinity, but it's a really different way of thinking about masculinity. You know, it's about enduring, being able to come back, being able to play. People are really excited and they make space for players to play. You know, there was a guy... One of the players recounted a story of a player with Parkinson's who was really shaky on the ice. Mm-hmm. And and he said, you know, people were amazing. They gave that player lots of space. They wanted him there. They wanted him to ca- watch him carry the puck to try and score. But they knew that it was dangerous maybe to come close to him, to have incidental contact. So they just gave him a lot of room on the ice, but really enjoyed that a player with Parkinson's could still come back, could still do something he enjoyed and made room for that. Well, you know, it's interesting because for the love of the game really does summarize it all so beautifully, doesn't it? Because that's why they play. A, it's exercise. B, it's companionship. And C, Christy, it's something they've been doing since they were basically old enough to stand up in many cases, especially if you grew, you were born in the winter as you and your sister were. Uh, chances are by the time you were two, you were skating in the back backyard somewhere and that's where it all starts and that's where the love of the game starts and it isn't it nice to know that at some point along the way you can get back to that after all the the super competitive and rah-rah sis boom ba stuff that you can actually find your way back to what you what, what brought you there in the first place just the joy of being out on the ice skating around being in the fresh air getting some exercise and the operative word playing yeah, of course. It's it's really it's a it truly is about love and pleasure and it really defies this notion that you know in later life you have to work so hard to stay fit and stay active. These these folks are staying fit and active but they're doing it in a way that really privileges their enjoyment and their time together and building real communities of care. It's, it's quite a beautiful thing. You have piqued my curiosity by the way because you refer to this uh, the Silver Skaters. You've mentioned this this league of older guys that is a, <laughs> a really fun league to, to watch. Now you describe them as quote a hockey league in a mid-sized Ontario city noted for its aging population. Now, yes. I, I got to take a guess. Is it Elliot Lake? <laughs> not Elliot Lake. Unfortunately, um, well, maybe not unfortunately, to, so that players can feel really comfortable truly telling their stories. We often don't disclose where they, where the research took place or who the players are. It's, right. it's part of the research protocol. I get universities. that. You just got my uh, curiosity all boiled um, up. That's all. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I can't tell you that. But um, <laughs> but I was wrong. My guess was wrong. You can't tell me that. I can tell you that. It is not Elliot Lake. No. no. Uh, ha- have, you play- have you applied any of this research? Now, it's a completely different cultural thing, but are you studying women's hockey at all, Christy? Um, I'd like to study women's hockey, and certainly on the, the list of things to do next. No, women's hockey is outside. I'm a, I've been a scholar of masculinities for most of my career, so I've spent a lot of time speaking with men, both young and old, who, who play sports. but um, And sadly, I think the Silver Skaters is a league only for men so far, but mm-hmm. most of the players seem very open to having women play, and they felt that the rules of their league with uh, no slap shots, no hitting, mm-hmm. really would facilitate um, you know, women, older women uh, could participate as well, and many of the players seemed really enthusiastic about that. Uh, I would like to find these leagues and see what's around for for older women. I have a graduate student right now doing some research looking at what kinds of leagues are available in in different cities across the country so that we have a sense of whether these kinds of wonderful spaces for aging are available for women, men, and people of all genders. Christy, really when, nice when that information that. becomes available, can you let us know? Because I'd, yes. I'd love to do a follow-up with you. This is a wonderful conversation. We appreciate your patience in, in, in the news break and all the rest of it, but it was really lovely to speak to you. And if you find information on women's hockey, particularly for uh, women as they age, as you found for men, 
in, please let us know and we'll we'll do a, a chat about that too. That'd be great. I'd, I'd enjoy that very much. Thank me, you. Me too. Dr. Christy Elaine joining us from St. Thomas University in Fredericton, New Brunswick. And if you'd like to read her piece, it's at theconversation.com. It's entitled, For the Love of the Game, What Old Men's Hockey Can Teach Young Players. Dr. Elaine, Christy, thanks so much for this. Great to speak to you. Let's uh, do it again. Yes, thanks so much for having me. Have a lovely morning. The week ahead will be a busy one for campaigning politicians in British Columbia, many of whom are going to spend a great deal of time in Surrey. Uh, Analysts will tell you that the Horgan government uh, was elected on the basis of its popularity in several Surrey ridings. They didn't get a majority, but they got enough to at least form government. Now they're going to try for that majority one more time, and Surrey will be a key battleground again. Here to talk about the big issues that are affecting Surrey voters is Anita Huberman from the Surrey Board of Trade, where she is the CEO. Anita, you and I have not spoken on the radio for a very long time. Good morning and welcome. Good morning. It's good to have you with us. What would be the numero uno provincial election issue in Surrey, Anita? Would it be the fact that the election was called in the first place quite unnecessarily so? Well, that's certainly one of the pieces, uh, but equal to that is the police transition within our city that was uh, recently approved in terms of the formation of a Surrey police board uh, in our city. So uh, those two issues are certainly top of mind. Well, the premier says now this is uh, the, he's backing away from this. His government, of course, approved the uh, the transition request. Uh, Mayor McCallum was elected with uh, considerable support on council on the on the premise of well, well, my my platform is going to include a transformation of the RCMP or from the RCMP to a Surrey city force. Uh, they got the votes. Uh, there were some defections once uh, once city council was formed, but nonetheless, uh, they got it through the solicitor general gave it the thumbs up and now of course there's a lot of second thinking going on and the premier mr horgan uh the ndp leader now saying this is mccallum's hornet's nest entirely his problem you go figure it out now that's uh, is that gonna fly that's not gonna fly the provincial government has a responsibility for public safety in surrey And number one is uh, we have the largest RCMP detachment in Canada. And any shift towards that, the whole nation is watching what the implications are in terms of uh, intelligence, in terms of technology, recruitment, costing, uh, all of those pieces and its implications to uh, B.C. cities and Canadian cities. So, you know, this is not only a, a civic issue, it's a provincial issue. The role of the Surrey Police Board that is now in place mm-hmm. is to really ensure that every checkbox is covered in terms of public safety for a city. And the, the they're working in partnership with the province to ensure that is the case. If, if it's not satisfied by the province, and both uh, Horgan and um, Minister Farnworth have indicated this, if it's not to their satisfaction, you know, they... Uh, will come in and uh, the next step will be taken to ensure that this transition does not take place. But it shouldn't have even gone this far at this point. Well, there's a little matter of $129 million. This is the number, Anita, that uh, keeps getting knocked around by way of describing the cost of the transition. But I'm, uh, uh, I'm hearing from several sources that that is an initial figure that may in fact be uh, quite larger at the end of the day. What do you know about that $129 million number? Well, that's the initial cost that's being communicated, but there's other factors that have not been considered, uh, such as uh, the technology costs, the training costs, the whole responsibility for public safety with a civic police force now will lie with the city of Surrey. And uh, especially with the pandemic now uh, and all government budgets at uh, really compromised, Mm -hmm. uh, do we really need to focus on this? Do they really have the funds to ensure a comprehensive, well-laid-out, organized, responsible public safety infrastructure? I don't think so. 
Well, you know, they're going to say that uh, some of the money that may be, may be more necessary, as in unexpected, uh, can be found perhaps because, well, you know, we canceled those tolls on the Portman Bridge. We've cut your Medicare payments down to zero. We're saving you money every day of the week. You know, we're, on, we're in your corner. That's what they're going to counter with, you know. Well, the provincial government, its budget in itself has been compromised as a result of this pandemic. And uh, what doesn't get talked about a lot is that this uh, public safety transition in Surrey is going to cost the provincial government in the long run. No one talks about that. And, uh, you know, it's uh, talked about kind of on the sidelines, but especially with the pandemic, especially when fiscal responsibility is so important, when the livability of what is going to be the largest city in British Columbia is so important, Mm -hmm. this provincial government, whoever forms government, they need to pay attention. And we've even spoken to uh, the leader of the official opposition, and they weren't even taking this seriously. So now the premier seemed to think, or Mr. Horgan seemed to think it's difficult. He, he's been recategorized in, 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 our, in our description. Mr. Horgan, the, the leader of the NDP, is talking about housing. It's all about housing this weekend, Anita. And you're, you're just pointing to the fact that it's very real, that Surrey is about to become the largest city in British Columbia. That will transition past Vancouver fairly soon. Uh, what about housing in Surrey? Because when it comes to housing discussions, they mostly seem to be about the city of Vancouver. Yeah, I mean, uh, Surrey has been so left behind in so many infrastructure investments. Housing is certainly one of them. Transportation is another. So there needs to be a blend of land use and housing strategies, uh, purpose-built rental, Mm -hmm. uh, partnerships with not-for-profits and government. Uh, You know, there's another 1.5 million people that are moving into Metro Vancouver by 2050. Many of them will be moving, living, working, south of the Fraser, in Surrey, all the way to Abbotsford. And we need attention, and we need action, and uh, the time is now. How many provincial ridings in Surrey? I I, I think nine. Uh, Am I wrong, Anita? It is nine. It is nine. So that that was a difference maker. Surrey was the deal breaker for the NDP in the last election. Did get a majority, but it got him government. So uh, it's considered a key battleground uh, for this this 2020 version of the election. Nobody seems to want. True. We, We anticipate it's going to be another key battleground in this election. Uh, so many issues at stake uh, in terms of, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the public safety infrastructure, the pandemic uh, still with us, housing, transportation, ta- uh, you know, I, I mentioned taxation. Sure. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, focus on the business community. So many businesses have been compromised as a result of the pandemic. Anita Huberman, thanks for this. We'll talk as the election goes forward. Syria is critical to the success of any winning political party in British Columbia. We'll keep an eye on things and we'll uh, get your assistance in that regard. Thanks for doing this with us this morning. Much appreciated. Thank you. CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade, Anita Huberman. A broad coalition of First Nations leaders, wilderness tourism operators, environmental NGOs, and commercial and sport fishing organizations gathered in North Van this week, demanding the federal government fulfill recommendations of the Cohen Commission to immediately remove open net salmon farms from the Discovery Islands and abolish all others from BC waters by 2025. Two of the uh, representatives of uh, those groups are with us this morning. It's a pleasure to welcome them both back to the program. Dane Chevelle is CEO of Organic Ocean and a member of the Commercial Fisherman Trawler Association. And uh, Bob Chamberlain is with us. Mr. Chamberlain is chair of the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance. Dane and Bob, good morning, guys. Welcome back. Thank you, uh, Sterling. Bob, uh, good morning, Sterling. Uh, Bob, good morning to you. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the Cohen Commission report. Let's just remind our listeners of uh, Justice Cohen's report back in 2012. Uh, just give us a little uh, f- uh, refresher on that one, if you could, please. Well, the Cohen Commission was struck when there was a very large loss of uh, 
Pacific salmon to the Fraser River, and it spent $32 million. It was a very thorough examination. Um, it identified a number of stressors uh, to wild salmon, not simply fish farming. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing is that it spoke about the fish farm industry as being able to present things that were irreversible. And I think that that is very key. And Recommendation 19 states that unless the Department of Fisheries and Oceans can demonstrate less than minimal risk to wild salmon, then by uh, Recommendation 19, September 30th is when this year is when the fish farms in Discovery Island area are to be removed. And I've got a bunch of information to support why we should have no faith in the Department of Fisheries and Oceans on this topic. Bob, where are the Discovery Islands? Just help us geographically, just pinpoint that for us. Uh, Discovery Islands are located in and around the Campbell River area. Gotcha. And Island. Yep. And so it's uh, an important migratory piece for Fraser salmon. And Dane, the other problem, the, the, the compounding of the problem this year is a precariously low salmon run. Sockeye numbers, the likes of which, the low numbers, uh, the likes of which we've not seen in a very long time. Yeah, I, I understand that it's the uh, worst in recorded history, and they've been maintaining these uh, stats, I think, for uh, near 150 years. And so what threat do fish farms represent this year for the commercial fishery, Dane, that they didn't, for example, represent last year in the light of such light salmon run numbers? Well, it's not just threats to the commercial uh, salmon fishery, Sterling. It's it's threats to um, everyone and everybody that uh, relies upon uh, fisheries for uh, social and economic impacts to their communities. I just returned from Prince Rupert. I've been fishing up north, and every coastal community that I visited was uh, in tatters, and it wasn't driven by COVID-19. It was really uh, um, the poor health of uh, the salmon ecosystem. And and by comparison, if you go to Alaska, their uh, coastal communities are vibrant and prosperous and uh, um, modern. Ours aren't, and we're neighboring jurisdictions that are harvesting uh, salmon in, uh, from the same ocean. So there's something markedly different between what they're doing and what we're doing. And Bob, the big difference, as, as Dane is alluding to, the big difference is in, in between the Alaska fishery and the British Columbia fishery is that in Alaska, they do not allow open pen uh, salmon uh, farming, do they? No, they don't. And that's very correct. And, you know, what we, <clears throat> what Canadians would generally turn to is look to the Department of Fisheries and Oceans um, now that they've allowed this industry into British Columbia waters to adequately look after wild stocks. Mm-hmm. But when you turn and look at the Auditor General's spring report of 2018, it clearly states in like the, the opening uh, verbiage in the report that they are not adequately managing the risks associated with salmon aquaculture, consistent with its mandate to protect wild fish. And it goes on to talk about it's not doing proper risk assessment on disease, and it certainly uh, does not define how it manages aquaculture in a precautionary manner in the face of scientific uncertainty. And so there's some real troubling facts. And, and again, the Auditor General cannot be dismissed as a, an activist. Mm-hmm. This is something that was a very thorough examination, a very clear comment that the DFO did not adequately, adequately enforce compliance with aquaculture regulations. So in a nutshell, there's the issue that the DFO is simply not operating and its primary responsibility to look after the environment and wild fish. And this should be a concern for every British Columbian and Canadian about the function of a federal department captured by an industry. Well, it's important to remember that we're talking about the same Department of Fisheries and Oceans that about 20 or 30 years ago actually managed the cod fishery out of existence in Newfoundland and Labrador. So this is uh, this is not a track not, not a track record that one would be proud of. Now, guys, we've had the no, minister and, and that's- that's where the precautionary principle emerged from, right. and yet they're abandoned it here in British Columbia. We've had the minister on. Bernadette Jordan joined us from her home in Nova Scotia a few weeks ago to talk about this fish farm and the timeline specifically. 2025 is key to this conversation. And the minister seemed to think that by 2025, they would begin the program of uh, rolling uh, pen, open pen farms out of BC and onto land. That would 
begin in 2025. As I understand it, Bob, the expectation is the opposite, that it's supposed to be over and done, fait accompli, completed by 2025. Absolutely. I agree with the, the last statement you made. And there's a number of reasons why this has to happen. And from an economics point of view, the Intrafish, which is an industry publication, now has a monthly update capturing the latest, latest information on the hottest sector in aquaculture globally, and that is land-based closed containment. Right. And Canada, if they want to push it further back and further back, all the government is doing is ensuring that we are not in the race, that we are not going to be adequately participating in the evolution of this industry, and that is not the best interest for the economy of Canada. Bob Chamberlain is the chair of the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance. Dane Shovel is with us from Organic Ocean. Mr. Shovel is a member of the Commercial Fisherman Trawler Association. Dane, you were saying before the news you've spent a few days uh, in the past uh, short while up the coast, up uh, Prince Rupert Way, uh, fishing up there and talking about the, uh, well, let, let's just put it kindly, the low energy of the fishing communities up and down the B.C. coast and it has a lot to do with salmon stocks, correct? Yeah, but when you get off the ferry in, in Alert Bay, you're greeted by a, a plaque there that has a photo of 500 commercial fishing boats rafted up uh, uh, in in the harbor there. Today you'd be lucky to see one or two, and those aren't even local boats, they're transient. So what happened? And is that a, a direct result of just not not enough fish, period? Yeah, well, I think so, and and as I said before, if you take a look at uh, BC's performance versus neighboring jurisdictions, and and you say what's different, uh, one of the things, and perhaps the only thing that is uh, significantly different, is that we have open net pen salmon farming, and they don't. Uh, Bob Chamberlain, we had the folks from the Salmon uh, F- Farms Association on, and uh, they presented a fairly vigorous defense of what they do, and we talked about the 2025 timeline. The one thing that struck me in the conversation more than anything else is the reality, the economic reality, of transitioning from open-pen salmon farming to on-land salmon farming. is a heck of an investment involved. It's going to cost a lot of money to change that over, and you sense a certain... Uh, understandable to an extent reluctance to you know go to commit to that kind of dough when we start to think about the capital investment in any evolution of an industry yes there's going to be extra price tags attached Mm -hmm. but we have to understand you know they they speak about employment they speak about profits they, they speak about tax base for this for the country, but the thing is, they're able to enjoy that simply because they externalize all their waste costs. They are not a responsible industry. And what we have now, like when we think about the one that's the land-based closed containment fish farm that's being built in Florida, when it's fully operational, it is going to meet 50% of the U.S. demand. Mm. And today, the present uh, BC Salmon Farmers Association companies, 80% of their stock, uh, product is what I've read goes to the United States. So they either we have a choice here in Canada. We can either sit here and watch markets disappear because of evolution and then watch this industry die, or we can get ahead of that curve, get on with land-based closed containment, protect wild salmon, and make sure that this industry has a place in the global market. If that is the case, Bob, going forward, and the uh, the Yanks down in Florida are doing this massive onshore uh, farming operation, could it be? Uh, could, could it come to a point where British Columbia salmon farmed salmon are going to get wrapped for being unethical? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the demand for ethical food sources is growing globally. We all know that. But consider, if this company decides to build a land-based closed containment system uh, in California, let's say, yeah. this industry in British Columbia is dead, period. No jobs, no nothing. So Canada and the commitment that, that Prime Minister Trudeau has made for land-based closed containment is the correct choice supported by 101 First Nations in British Columbia. But more importantly, I think, well, not more importantly, sorry, but I think what's critical for voters to understand is 25 elected members of Parliament of British Columbia have signed salmon declarations for the transition to land-based closed containment. So if this government is not listening to the 25 elected MPs from British Columbia, 101 First Nations in British Columbia, 
who are they listening to? If they're not listening to the outcome of voters or First Nations, there's a serious, serious problem here. Dane, referencing your point about the boats tied up up in Port Hardy uh, and the lack of activity, what would you what would you say in terms of percentage of a good year? What percent? Well, what where are we in terms of, of fishing activity in 2020 in BC? About 15 percent of a great year, or or less, or more? Probably less. And and Sterling, this isn't just 2020. This is. 2020, it's 2019, and uh, unless things change, it's going to be 2021. Bob is absolutely right. I mean, there's there's no waiting until 2025. This is uh, something that should have happened yesterday, and particularly the the September 30th, 2020 deadline. It's uh, it's just unconscionable that uh, um, the uh, fish farms aren't re- being removed from the discovery package be, or passage because the Cohen inquiry said that unless they uh, they can be demonstrated not to have an impact beyond a shadow of a doubt. They've got to go. And this year, uh, scientists and commercial fishermen that have been uh, uh, fishing in those areas have seen unprecedented uh, sea lice loads on out-migrating smolts. So it's not a, a matter of there not being evidence that they're not doing any harm. There's uh, strong evidence that they're doing significant harm. Yeah, Dane, we don't have a lot of time here, but in terms of the disease, uh, if you know what uh, what percentage of the population we have such a low count this year to begin with, what percentage of that population are going to be killed off by this disease, if at all? Is it debilitating? Is it fatal? Well, you got you got to understand that salmon, as resilient as they are, have a, a myriad of challenges. Uh, uh, there's forestry, there's agriculture, there's industrialization, there's urbanization, and then on top of it, we're uh, forcing them to swim through a gauntlet of uh, fish farms that are loaded with sea lice, mm-hmm. and uh, the mature Atlantic salmon in this in the uh, fish farms are uh, able to withstand the sea lice, but the uh, a little out migrating smolts. Um, are dying from them, right. and that's uh, obviously got to have a significant impact on why our uh, uh, salmon uh, stock performance is so poor. Uh, Bob, I'll give you the final word, and Dane, we're grateful for your involvement this morning, too, but you talked about voters. Both of you talked about voters. Uh, we've got a provincial election underway. That's not. It's a federal issue, but can the province exert pressure on the feds, mm-hmm. and should they, Bob? Well, absolutely. They are in a key position to make substantial movement to protect BC's wild salmon. The fish farms enjoy a tenure issued by the provincial government. And so we do not have to wait for um, the behemoth of the Department of Fisheries and Oceans to take the lead here. It's within the elected governance of British Columbia that could make the strong decision to safeguard this resource to fully implement a precautionary principle which DFO has simply abandoned. And we've seen this already. We've seen it in the Broughton Archipelago LOU on fish farms, implementing the UN Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People for the first time in Canadian history, where we had a shared decision-making process with First Nations. And we have to be mindful that that process was supported by the affected industries by letter for the fairness and the transparency and inclusiveness. So we have it within our reach here in British Columbia to safeguard wild salmon. We don't have to wait for the DFO, which is certainly a captured regulator as articulated in the Cohen Commission report. Interesting stuff. Dane Chevelle from Organic Oceans. Great to talk to you again, sir. And Bob Chamberlain, thanks for joining us again as well. Wonderful to have you both. We appreciate it. We'll talk again. Thanks, Sterling. It's a pleasure to welcome Curtis Wallace-Chuck to the program this morning. Curtis is Executive Director of uh, Programming for Vancouver's International Film Festival, and we're here to talk about the 2020 version. Curtis, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, sir. Let's talk a little bit about the center, first of all, because it's kind of, it's it, the, uh, the festival began just a couple of days ago, and the center was reopened a couple of days ago. Kind of a happy coincidence, to say the very least, Curtis. Yeah, kind of a happy coincidence and kind of down to the, uh, down to the wire as the construction project <laughs> goes well. I'm sure it was. But, uh, we, uh, you know, we began a major renovation on our year-round home, the VIF Centre, where the Band City Theatre has been for 15 years on March 9th. And, of course, the world changed very quickly and very dramatically shortly after that. Yeah. So um, it has been closed for those six months, and it reopened on the 24th. 
you know, we'll be kind of rolling out the new amenities there over the months to come, depending on what the circumstances are. But the facility now has a, a second screen, which is very exciting for us, as well as an education suite and a new media lab. Wow. Um, so really will allow us to expand our programming and, and actually just serve the programming we've been doing already as well. So, All the better as we move forward. And this is the Vancouver International Film Centre that closed a week before the country closed. Uh, exactly. So that, that was planned anyway. And it just and so was the idea, though, Curtis, to have everything uh, timed out so that we are today where we are with the center reopened. Uh, and so are, are we on schedule here then? We are on schedule. I guess the, the only major difference there is that uh, we were only going to close it for two two weeks over August. So it was to be open the entire time. Sure. OK. Um, but yeah. So uh, but we always plan to have it open for the festival. And we were able to, as I said, open it on Thursday with a, the world premiere of Loretta Todd's Monkey Beach, which was fantastic. And uh, just really, really inspiring to see people back in that space and you know, knowing that our staff were taking all the proper measures necessary to ensure their safety and ensure the safety of our filmmakers as well. Indeed. Um, by the way, friends, uh, the uh, website is viff.org, and that's the full lineup. You can, you can find out who's playing, what and where, and all of those important uh, intersection details are all there for you at viff.org. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the center, though. First, Dutch, uh, I mean, this is a rudimentary stuff, Curtis, but not everyone that's early and not everyone listening remembers where the center is so remind us of that yeah so it's at 1181 seymour street which is right uh, at davy and seymour so in downtown vancouver uh it was opened 15 years ago and it's the uh, the year-round home for the uh, vancouver international film festival and um you know it uh it has been proven extremely successful mm-hmm. so part of the plans for this renovation were the fact that we we found we'd kind of maxed out our capacity for single screen. So always a desire to have a second screen there. Um, so we could either carry over popular titles or, you know, we can have um, films on offer that, you know, aren't expected to draw 170 people sure. in a large theater. Mm-hmm. The second screen is 40 seats. Or, um, you know, it really allows us to actually have like our own mini film festivals, multi-screen film festivals within our own building, which is a really exciting proposition. How many um, works will be featured in VIF 2020, Curtis? Yeah, so VIF 2020, you know, it's a, it's our 39th edition, but it's a, kind of our first edition in many ways as well. We have, you know, 15 films playing in the theater itself, okay, but almost 100 feature films playing online. So um, people can actually, you know, recognize in the circumstances we live in, uh, people throughout British Columbia can enjoy the festival for the first time uh, through the website you mentioned, fifth.org, and can buy a $60 subscription that gets them all of the films in the festival, as well as all the, uh, the talks we're doing as well. Uh, so it really represents remarkable value and also really unprecedented access to the festival as well. I was going to say the talks are sometimes that's the most fun. I've been to a few VIF events over the years, Curtis, and one of the most fun events is when you attend a, a premiere or a performance of a movie and either the cast, members of the cast or the director or, or sometimes even both are in the room. So you watch the movie and then they do a Q&A afterwards and that's fabulous. So if you do this online, would you be able able to uh to to tap into the q and a's if they were offered after some films yeah definitely i think we've recorded 40 q and a's for those 100 films and um so those will play after the film has screened online and then in addition to that we have a kind of a scheduled talk at 6 p.m every night that uh, you know sometimes focuses on a specific uh, sorry specific film Mm -hmm. but sometimes goes deeper into like larger issues so like tonight we have um a look back at the oka crisis uh, 30 years afterwards right um with the director uh, tracy deer who has a film at the festival called beans that explores her own personal experiences um living in that region at that time uh tomorrow night we have a conversation with charlie kaufman who is the writer of being john malkovich years ago but oh, sure. film. i'm thinking of ending things you know explorations of tv series like uh watchmen an actor's um, kind of showcase workshop uh, with the stars of Black Bear. And then actually like the the directors of The New Corporation, which is a, uh, a follow-up on the groundbreaking 2003 documentary, looking again at uh, kind of corporate malfeasance. Um, Joel Backen and Jennifer Abbott will join us later in the festival on October 6th to really kind of take a deep dive into the, uh, the issues that film explores. 
Interesting stuff. So how many people typically in, in a normal year uh, would be counted as attending VIF? Yeah, I think we, uh, we've usually been about 120,000 admissions, and I believe that is often about 40,000 unique visitors. Okay. So, you know, a lot of people will see more than one thing. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so are, and, you, are you expecting that same headcount, if, if not more, given the fact that more people are more, shall we say, comfortable and tuned in to uh, enjoying their entertainment? I mean, it's the Netflix era all of a sudden, right? Everybody's been cocooning at home, so no biggie to spend a couple of extra dollars and check out some new movies from the hometown crowd. Exactly. We have, you know, the Canadian features, but also some of the best international cinema as well. And uh, in terms of viewership, it's it, you know it's going to be an odd year uh, statistically, in addition to all the other oddness, because mm-hmm. we um, we recognize that you know that one subscription uh, at sixty dollars is probably going to be for at least two people, if not more, in a oh, household sure. or people having viewing parties, things like this, yep. and we're all in favor of that. Um, I think that uh, so we will we'll try to do some accounting afterwards of exactly what the viewership works out to, um, probably with some surveying of audiences and things like that. And, uh-huh. You know, we uh, we hope that uh, the people recognize the value of this, and uh, you know, we also are doing. We're not we're not for profit organizations. We're also doing some fundraising throughout. So if people do find themselves having four people in front of the screen, hopefully they see fit to. Uh, to be able to, to help out a little well. bit. Huh? Uh, by and the way, as a complete aside, it's nothing to do with VIF, except that it's the biz and the buzz. Uh, as of a week from now, there will be 60, 60 productions up and running. Movies of the week, TV episodes, of, you know, the Valentine Channel. I mean, there are 60 productions. That's a lot of jobs and a lot of work for people in Vancouver, some of whom have been sitting on their hands for quite some time. That's welcome news, isn't it, Curtis? It definitely is, and I know that a lot of our, you know, filmmakers make their make their living, if you will, um, working in the industry as well, uh, so they can pursue their passion projects. So sure. I think that is uh, definitely a, a very good news story for uh, creators all across the province. Curtis Wallace, Chuck, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thumbs up to you, and we wish you considerable success with VIF 2020. Thank you so much. Curtis Wallace, Chuck, is one of the directors of programming for Vancouver's International Film Festival. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.